Here's the one thing I know for sure. Black people have multitudes. When you work with the work of black people, as I do often, you will not go starving, you will not go short. That the work has a richness and a depth that for me is often breathtaking. What I'm doing a lot of the time is illuminating some of the space and ideas and aesthetics. This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Rafilu Mpakanyane. Powered by I2 Art Insurum, Season 1 of the Latitudes Podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insurum. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. My guest on this episode of the Latitudes podcast is Echo Eschen. His Instagram bio describes him in short as writer and curator, chair of Fourth Plinth Commissioning Group, curator of In the Black Fantastic. Of course, he's all of those things and so much more. The erudite and engaging Echo has edited a number of magazines over the year. Arena magazine was one at which he made history as its first black editor. Echo was artistic and executive director of the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London in the mid-aughts, and his writings been printed in global publications such as the New York Times, The Guardian, Granta, and Vogue. In our exploration of Echo's life and career, it is absolutely fascinating to hear all about the places his curiosity has taken him, and most importantly, why he chooses always to do the difficult things. Echo elegantly pulls back the curtain on the process and impetus behind his many career milestones and highlights. And of course, we look at his most recent works, including In and Out of Time, as well as In the Black Fantastic, which opened to critical and popular acclaim. So let's get into it. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us on the Latitudes podcast. Welcome. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm going to use this as a jump-off point for our conversation, Echo. When you um, are put together and were curating Africa Modern, which was, I guess, uh, taking the pulse of South Africa's cultural landscape and the continent's cultural landscape, and of course, it was launched around about the same time as uh, Zeitzmocker was in Cape Town as well. Mm-hmm. I was struck by... What a bold uh, endeavor that is. I'm sure you've heard that tongue-in-cheek phrase, Africa is not a country. And of course, South Africa is just so colorful, so dynamic, so nuanced and complicated. How do you go about that? Not just for a country, but in fact, for an entire continent, I guess, in some way. 
Hmm, yes. Did you worry about missing someone or something vital no, I mean, uh, during this process? Uh, I mean, here's the here's the thing. I I try not to hold too much to an idea of objectivity of universality. I'm interested in asking questions, I'm interested in exploring space, I'm interested in trying to find work and the people who do that work who seem to me particularly resonant, whose work seems to me to speak of who they are as individuals, who they are as creative people, of the culture and society and the times they live in. Beyond that, I can't really make any more claims. So we did <laughs> African Modern and it's a take. Someone yeah. else can do the same thing and offer an entirely different version of that, which has its own absolute truths to it. So the way I get through this is not to think that I'm doing the definitive version of a thing. I'm doing I'm offering a perspective and that comes grounded in my own background and so on. But it's only that. Yeah. You studied history and politics at the London School of Economics and how do you imagine or how do you see your st- your work being parenthesized by history, by politics and economics? Has it been brought to bear in the work that you do? It's interesting because actually I draw quite a lot on those roots. I mean, you know, I talk about universalism. When I was a student studying history and politics, you know, we studied the Enlightenment. We studied all of these things. It's a very kind of classical way, really, of thinking about the times and you know at that time i wasn't necessarily thinking about well what's not being said here what's not part of the story here but the same modes of analysis which allow you to think about okay how do these things connect how do people place culture society money power how do they fit together what form and context do they create and then within that, how are voices heard? That same approach, which is essentially some of what I learned back then, and which was useful in terms of thinking across territories from politics to history to economics simultaneously, I still follow today, which is that I can't look at an artwork in isolation I think about it in relation to dark historical precedents, but also the times it's made and the times within which it's received in the contemporary moment. And those seem to me to be valid and I hope valuable ways of thinking about how we look at this thing, what it means to us. Those are the questions I, I try and ask in most things I do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Stuart Hall, when he wrote of uh, cultural composition, talks about that inescapable or inextricable baggage that every text will hold, no matter how much we try to pretend it's not there. We can't run away from it. You mentioned following your curiosity a short while ago, and I wonder what tended to be the sort of themes or the things you wanted to understand better 
what were you fundamentally trying to work out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, whether it's by your studies or or your work yeah, as a I mean, cultural that, observer. That's, that's a super good question. Um, I, I mean, in fact, I was actually born in Britain. Uh, and my family moved back to Ghana when I was about two. We lived uh-huh. there for two years, and we came back to uh-huh. Britain. But that shift is fairly relevant to everything that happens after that. So I came back to Britain when I was about five without having much memory of the place before that, because we left when I was very young. And I came back to Britain. It's the 1970s. It's the 1980s. And Britain is a bizarre place. It's really How so? <laughs> oh, just crazy. <laughs> just kind of insane because the sort of <laughs> the kind of racialized nature of the British everyday was just yeah. actually strange. Um, this entire—I mean, look, I, I'm talking to you, South Africa, and so on. South Africa played these things out in very visible ways. Sure. What plays out its racial typologies and its prejudices in ways that are both. Um, covert but also at that time bizarrely explicit just in terms of everything from football matches to tv shows the ways that black people were mocked and made fun of on a regular basis this is what i experienced coming back to britain tv film newspapers the playground all of this stuff like racism felt like it was part of the popular discourse it was part of the common language it was part of how society understood itself i found that very strange slightly mm. extraordinary and alienating upsetting all kinds of things i was very aware of it from that age and i've never stopped thinking really about that and the search <laughs> is to try and figure out that how do you find a way to live in a world or in a country, let's say, yeah. that makes it palpably obvious in many ways or has made it palpably obvious over time? They don't really want you here. Mm-hmm. I've always felt that, you know... Britain, fascinating place in all sorts of ways. It's a place I choose to live, but it's not necessarily a place that chooses to have people like me as core to it. Yeah. And so most of my searching has been both about trying to figure out how to live here and then to ensure that in that process, I don't get drowned or suffocated or insert metaphor here which means to be otherwise silenced to be otherwise marginalized so most of the fight is through the things i do to make sure that i don't feel like i've been vanished or silenced or disappeared yeah there's so much there that i can absolutely relate to and we can extend all of that to um I guess being a woman as well, and and I wonder in in this contemporary in in the times that we find ourselves, who feels comfortable, who feels wanted, who feels welcomed into many of the spaces that they currently exist in or are flourishing in, despite the circumstances, mm. and it's quite an interesting tension that 
I've now come to expect to never be free of, but one that you master. How far along that journey, I guess on a personal basis, do you feel you are? We can look, of course, at your career and say you've gone incredibly far in that regard, um, whether it is being the first Black editor of a major magazine in the UK, um, Arena Magazine in 1997, you know, whether it's uh, becoming the first Black director of um, the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. How do you, how far uh, along in, I guess, the journey of mastery do you feel you are with that? Yeah, tension? I mean, I feel you're always a student, eh? Like Stuart Hall, let's go back. <laughs> Stuart Hall talks about uh, race and identity as a process of becoming rather than being. And I feel the journey is still in process in that I don't know what it necessarily means to arrive at a place. I don't know what it necessarily means to say, well, you've mastered this thing. I feel that I'm more interested, or I still feel very invested in the process of looking and exploring and mapping. And I'm not sure I've arrived at a necessary settled terrain or settled single place for myself in there. To think about it another way. Yeah. There's lots of things that I've been able to do, and that's great. Mm -hmm. I feel there's lots more I could do, and it's the second of those, this search for more places to explore, more possibilities mm -hmm. to unpack, more things that are difficult rather than things that have been done. That's what seems interesting to me, because I don't know, otherwise, what what is there? I'm going to repeat myself. More <laughs> what? Yeah, what lie? What might lie ahead? Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of the creative impetus, isn't it? Uh, wanting to do difficult things. Perhaps you can expand on the difficult part of this, which is in the Black Fantastic. You created in the Black Fantastic this work and put together a cohort of Black artists exploring myth, science fiction, Afrofuturism, um, and it came out to critical acclaim. The Observer called it spectacular from uh, first to last, and it toured quite a bit. And I'm curious about what that difficult part, that tension once again, that was being explored within many of these works in yeah. yeah within many of these works i mean so yeah let's try and pack that a little bit so in the black fantastic yeah this is a show that i did at the hayward gallery 2023 in the summer uh it did very well brought together these artists as you say um nick cave and wangachi mutu chris feely uh hugh Locke, uh cara walker Ellen Gallagher brought together these artists, many of whom are you know, artists working at the top of their careers, artists who've been working for most of them for 20 even 30 years. An extraordinary facility, extraordinary level of insight. What I wanted to do was 
create a context within which we could look at them as figures who are thinking about myth and speculative fiction and, and so on. Mm. We wanted to do that also in, in acknowledgement of this difficult path that we're talking about. So let's take, if we take, for example, one of those artists, Nick Cave. So Nick Cave is a Chicago-based artist. He's famous for making these very spectacular-looking objects that he calls sound suits, which yeah. are these, you know, spectacularly adorned, well, kind of suits that people can wear. Um, but Nick Cave made the first one of those after uh, seeing the, uh, the brutal beating of Rodney King in L.A. in the 1990s. Mm. He was so appalled, really, at the violence being inflicted upon that black body that he made his own artworks which are both protective in that the sound suits protect identity they cover you up entirely but they also take up space they're also this proud declaration of being and belonging they're spectacular they're colorful they're impossible to ignore impossible to miss they offer a way of holding space demanding to be seen that also moves beyond a typing of people, a typing of the people who wear them as only black, as singular mm. in terms of, an, of a definition or a perspective that can be offered to them. So he offers a way of flourishing, a way of being that is rooted in black experience, and in fact, rooted in black pain, if we think about the beating of Rodney King, but that also says, this is who we are, but also this in our beauty and our flourishing is simultaneously who we are. I was so fascinated by Nick Cave's ability to hold pain and possibility and beauty simultaneously. And this is the same characteristic that I saw in all of the artists in that exhibition. They could speak of the deepest and most troubling experience of black life and being through chattel slavery, continued exploitation and subjugation of peoples of colour. And then they could also balance that with works of extraordinary beauty, extraordinary vision. And that balance is one of the things that, well, it's what I wanted to explore in that exhibition, the moral counterweights of thinking about death and horror and subjugation and also asserting life and possibility and beauty. Artists are very good, or good artists are very good at being able to hold both those propositions at once. But it all comes back down to then, I would suggest, this understanding or this awareness that the way we walk through the world as a people and as peoples continues to be fraught, continues to be fraught with all kinds of potential tensions and hostilities and violences with attacks every day in our personhood and our being, whether those are slight or whether those are fundamental attacks, those continue. So I wanted to speak of that and then also say, well, this is how we can speak of that in ways that offer us a way 
to also consider being, to also consider beauty, because this too is part of who we are. Yeah. It becomes important for us to continue to assert our rights to beauty. Otherwise, we're losing. Otherwise, they are winning. Otherwise, we are denying our own birthright as people of infinity and riches. Yeah. I don't imagine when you say they, you are talking about a DJ Khaled they. <laughs> who are they? Who are, well, who are they is the invisible world that we live within which is the invisible world that portends to, that claims towards the universal, that claims to the objective, that claims to the ordinary and normal. So to put this in other terms, one might talk about the idea, for instance, of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And here I don't mean individual white people. Sure. I mean the idea that there's a normative standard of being with, with which reflects the values and power structures and standards that we all might aspire to. Whiteness sure. then as an ideology, whiteness as a power structure, and the people designated as white as authority and truth, and non-white people as somehow lesser than that. That's the system. Like I said, this is not in any way about any individual person. Sure. It's about a way of reading and structuring the world that historically has put us at a lesser position. Sure, absolutely. And it also puts me in mind of a way of allowing ourselves or remembering a way of reading and understanding the world that lives beyond those tiny confines that you've just spoken about. I mean, a, a very simple but silly thing that I often chuckle about is when you are watching perhaps US politicians, uh, mm. usually ostensibly on the right, talking about traditional family values or the family and how it ought to be. And I laugh and say, well, clearly you've never traveled much because the way families can look around these parts is many mothers, <laughs> many grandmothers, many sisters and brothers that you meet for the first time at 30 years old by way of having long conversations and making connections that in fact you are related. And what you imagine to be a universality and how you talk about family for us is much more expansive and I think quite beautiful. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's really, I'm just interested in how we make space for mm. an acknowledgement of those ways of living and ways of seeing. That seems to me important and also seems to me productive. After the break, we continue our conversation. Two 
trailblazing South African companies, Kalashnikov Gallery and Pablo House Boutique Hotel have come together to create a unique art experience in Johannesburg. Gallery Night's Eight Rooms sees works by 12 South African artists reimagine the hotel and offers guests the opportunity to re-articulate what a holiday memento can be by showcasing gifts that are unique, South African and collectible. Visit Pablo House to enjoy the gorgeous hotel, views, artworks and stellar food and drinks. Bookings are by reservation only. Contact info at pablohouse.co.za to book. Talk to me about beauty and the necessity of it. And and I guess how you define it. Gosh, how do you ask someone to define beauty? (laughs) But why is it necessary? Why do we need it? Yeah, I mean that, that's a good question. I think about this. I think about this a lot uh, when I'm curating exhibitions. I think there's I on a practical basis. A lot of the time, I curate group shows and rather than individual shows. And what that means is, you have a concept for a show. You're trying to explore that, bring that to life through the artworks in the exhibition. There's one way to do that sometimes, which makes my heart sink, which is when you walk into an exhibition and there's quite a didactic mm-hmm. uh, way of exploring a concept. You know, you know, a curator's got an idea and they just want the artworks to illustrate that. That can sometimes be good, but it can also sometimes be fantastically dry. Mm-hmm. It's like a dead assemblage of works in a room. I hold to, I mean, a simple, a really simple precept is show, don't tell. You have an idea, but the works need to speak of that idea. And the works need to speak in service of themselves and of the space. The idea needs to undergird that, but you discover it through the works, not on top of the works. Um, to some extent, then, I'm looking for artworks that you know, sing and resonate in a space. Mm-hmm. But on the specifics of beauty, this is also to say this is another way I mean, also, I work primarily with artists of colour, often black artists. Um, For me, then, if we think about beauty, beauty isn't about something superficial, something that sits on top. Beauty becomes fundamental because there's a politics to beauty. There's a way of asserting and insisting on visibility, the way of celebrating virtuosity, the mm-hmm. way of acknowledging that the work that those artists do sits in conversation with lineages of artistic practice that can go back generations or centuries or how we define that. So mm-hmm. I'm all for celebrating that, not as a route towards simply nice images or nice works, but as a route to creating space that speaks of richness and promise. Yeah. And staying with in the Black Fantastic, the artist and the project, Hulock talks about his experience um, in Guyana, talking about the fact that it is a land of blood and the superstition Mm. that then accompanies, I guess, the speculative aspect of how you think about life, um, the afterlife, how you think about modernity in this land that has been founded, I guess, upon such cruel foundations. 
And the function of speculative work of this nature, how does that further enhance that beauty, as you said, which is a mental or perhaps a necessary counterpoint to the work itself? How does that enrich an experience or one's appreciation of what life is, what life can be? Yeah, I mean, look, you talk about Hugh Lock. Hugh Lock's a great artist, but I would almost step outside visual art for a moment. Let's yeah. take two other examples. The great uh, film Daughters of the Dust by Judy Dash. Mm, yes. 80s, 80s, early 90s. Um, yeah. uh, or the work of Tony Morrison, Beloved, and other novels. In all of these, from Hugh's work through to Daughters of the Dust, through to Beloved, or almost any other Tony Morrison book, you have these fugitive states that are in play. You have collective memories of the past and of enslavement and so on. You also have ghosts that are walking through space. You have Mm -hmm. memories of the past come alive in these fugitive states, spirits, spectres. You have a sense of porousness and proximity to other worlds, to other ways of being, other ways of seeing. Now, historically, uh, from a purely uh, Western rationalist perspective, we might think of this as superstition, mm. this <laughs> ignorance, even. But really, these are modes of speculation. These are suggestions and invitations to consider the world in its textural richness. These are invitations to think about African cultural practices and beliefs. These are epistemologies that offer us a way to think beyond the narrowness of a perspective that says there's only one truth. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to believe wholeheartedly in spirits, in other worlds, in other worlds, but is a suggestion that we can speak in a language that's evocative, that's rich, that invites thinking aloud, that invites dreaming, and that honours that as part of a way of seeing and being and travelling through the world. I'm sure a common question that you have been asked is the various titles that you have of writer, of broadcaster, curator. I wonder for you, when you assume or put on each one of these, what it is that you turn to each of them for? What do you want to do with each of them? I mean, that, that's also an interesting question. I tend not to make too much distinction. Because most of what I do, whether it's, yeah, um, make a documentary or, or an exhibition, most of it starts with writing. Most of it starts with trying to explore some territory. And for my purposes, I have to set that down. I have to set down what an idea is, what a proposition is, what it is I'm exactly I'm trying to do. And then after that, what I've realised essentially is that I'm fundamentally interested in how it feels and how it might look for us to live and assert our aliveness within these worlds and environments where our presence remains contested. 
I'm interested in what that experience is, and I'm interested in the manifold different ways that different creative figures from the African diaspora address that same problem. It's a problem because we meet resistance, irrespective of the levels of success we live within, and our work speaks of that resistance to an environment, and the best of our work speaks of the worlds that we can create, notwithstanding those resistances. So most of the work I do, in one form or another, is thinking aloud about that. And I've realised that sometimes the same proposition can take a number of different forms. It can be a book and an exhibition and a film work and so on. Or it's better suited just to one of those. Yeah. I'm thinking of your time at Arena. I'm thinking of being in the editor's seat at the helm of a very important element within popular culture and you are helming all of this and navigating what to include, what gets excluded, what gets praised, etc. And and in all our conversation about history and the context that we find ourselves in, how does popular culture and perhaps even magazine culture in this sort of contemporary writing slot into or work with the elements that we've been exploring? Yeah, it was a sort of, I would say editing magazines, it's a very useful experience for becoming a curator. Mm-hmm. I was editing magazines before I ever curated an exhibition. Some of that process is similar in that the like what is it? There's a you know there's a t- editor's kind of yeah, some of the grandiose language that you use when you're editing stuff. People talk about killing your babies. It's a fun, but you know, it's like you're having to cast out stuff the entire time. You're having to discriminate the entire time. You're having to make decisions all the time about what's in and what's out. You're having to tell stories all the time about why something is compelling. And the greatest or the biggest choice you have to make when you're editing magazines, or certainly it was in my time, the most agonizing choice often is who you put on the cover. Yeah, you know, it defines that magazine for that month and so on. Um, who are your heroes? Who do you believe in? Who are the totemic figures that you feel represent a time or a place that represent a culture? Those yeah. are the questions I was having to ask myself on a monthly basis. Didn't always get them right necessarily because it's a commercial proposition. You're trying to sell stuff as well. I think having to ask those questions was really valuable training. Like, what you know, can you distill a whole bunch of thinking to a single image that sits on the cover of a magazine? Can you identify shifts in a culture, sometimes six months in advance of when something is supposed to hit? a newsstand or when something is supposed to be shifting around you. It was agonising as well, if you didn't necessarily get them yes. right. <laughs> but yeah. again, that's that's part of the process. You just, I never produced a single perfect issue of a magazine, but that's what I try to do every month. Mm. Mm. 
I mean, the irony of it is, actually, there is quite a lot of glamour. You get invited sure. to theaters, you travel around the world. I was going to, when I was editing Arena, it's a men's style magazine. So it was a Paris Fashion Week, and New York Fashion Week, and London Fashion Week every six months, and meet lots of people. Mm. All of that stuff. But I think if you take any of these things seriously, oh, they're still way on. <laughs> you know, there's still, I'm still, the questions I was still asking then, they, I, I mean, I felt a responsibility to try and get something right, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It, to be honest, it's the same responsibility I feel now doing an exhibition. So the timescale for exhibitions is different. Instead of three months, it's three years, let's say, do a show. Across that entire period, across that entire three-year period, there is not a single day when I don't feel an anxiety. I don't feel mm-hmm. a burden of responsibility about have I got this right? Have I really, yeah, is it going to work? And throughout that whole time, I have no idea until a show opens whether it's really going to work or not, whether people are going to enjoy it or not. I don't know, you know? So, yeah, these things, they stay in your head, yeah. We continue our conversation after the short break. Latitudes Online is the world's leading online marketplace for art from Africa. Discover and buy artworks from over 1,700 artists and enjoy editorial from leading voices on the continent. When you buy from Latitudes Online, you have peace of mind that your artwork will be safely delivered to you in perfect condition. Visit latitudes.online to discover and buy art from Africa and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I am going to ask you a very cheesy question. And the question is stolen from Oprah Winfrey. Mm-hmm. She often asks people what they know for sure. And I'd like to know from you today, Echo, what do you know for sure? I mean, I'm tempted to say nothing for sure. And you could. <laughs> we could leave it right there. Yeah, <laughs> but the ego won't allow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, but I'm, I'm trying to think about the question properly. Okay, look, here's the one thing I know for sure. Yes. That the black people have multitudes. That when you work with the work of black people, as I do often, you will not go starving, you will not go short, that the work has a richness and a depth that for me is often breathtaking. What I'm doing a lot of the time is illuminating some of the space and ideas and aesthetics that I can see before me. Sometimes that's in the form of my own work, in terms of writing, sometimes it's curating, and so on. Always, the thing that sustains me is the extraordinary reaching that I see around me. You know, as a world, we've been through some strange few years recently. The thing that sustains me so much of the time is being able to sit and walk, look at artworks, read poetry, watch films even, 
that speak of pain and beauty and preciousness and precariousness and possibility and connection, all of these things. This is what sustains me. Often these are new encounters with works, but the thing I know is that that work, that cosmology of extraordinary practice is all around me. That's what holds me up. That's what sustains me. That's what allows me to keep walking. Eku, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it really has been such a pleasure and um, experiencing and benefiting from your vibrant mind and presence really is just a big boon to all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Thanks for listening to the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Rafilwem Pakanyane, for the Rare Event Foundry. Spike Valentine is on technical for DBO Medium and a big thank you to the Latitudes team.